You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Our friends, can I ask you to put your hands together and welcome uh, Peter and Neil Chambers. Neil, maybe we can uh, start with you by getting to know you just a little bit better, but do you want to introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are? Uh, I'm Neil Chambers. I'm the minister of Bandura Presbyterian Church, and um, I'm a past student of Peter's, so, yeah, a long time ago. Neil, do you want to tell us uh, the first time you heard Peter preach, what was that Uh, like for you? The first time I heard uh, Peter preach was at a crusader you probably don't have crusaders, but it's a school youth group. Uh, I was in year 11, I think, and Peter preached on the Sermon on the Mount. I came from a liberal church, and it was the first time I'd heard the Bible taught properly, and it was exciting. Yeah. Yeah. You weren't, but the Bible was. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Lord Jesus. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It, actually, it actually made sense. Praise it was God. wonderful. And Neil, we uh, really value the fact that you're here with us today. We thank God for Bandura Presbyterian Church. Uh, we're in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. We don't often get to the north, but whenever anyone uh, lives north side, we send them to your, your way. Uh, and we, we really praise God for the partnership that we have and can share right. in this way. Um, well, a lot of you have sent questions through, and what we might do is start with some of the big hitters first. I'm not going to ask them in order of popularity, but what might make some logical sense as we move, move through this. Um, Peter, you opened yesterday by looking at the sovereignty of God, and what a big uh, doctrine in the Scriptures, one that ties so many things together, but also one that can be quite controversial, because if you dig deep into the implications of that and what it looks like and what that entails for humanity and us... I feel like even more questions arise. Um, and we might start with the big one. I know everyone's asking the predestination question, but why don't we start with this? Um, can you explain to us how, in what way can God be sovereign over all things? And you mentioned, in some sense, even over evil in the world, and him still not being morally responsible or the author of that in some way. Yes, thank you very much. And uh, if I go first, then Neil can correct me. And... Uh, <laughs> add what needs to be added. Um, uh, Indeed, one of the big questions. Uh, The first thing we must ask ourselves always is, what does the Bible say? I have no, I personally have no further information than what the Bible says. Uh, It's not as though I'm a philosopher and brilliant philosopher and can see the answers to these questions apart from the Bible. I can't, and I don't think any great philosopher can, actually. What we have is God's revelation of himself. And if he hasn't told us, then I can't tell you and I can't pretend to tell you what the answer is. First point. Second point. The issue is raised in Scripture. I think of uh, Habakkuk chapter 2, for example. Oh, sorry. The second point is the one that I made yesterday. Whatever the answer is, of this we can be clear, that God is not the author of evil. From whatever it has come, we do not know, but God is not the author of evil. 
and we must not ever attribute evil in any way to God himself. Uh, next point, this, the issue is not, is not ignored in Scripture. Uh, I think of Habakkuk chapter 1, for example, where uh, the prophet sees the forces, the, uh, the armed forces of Babylon sweeping through the land, and he says, how can this happen? How can these evil men uh, be sweeping through the land in that way? And he asks God, you who are of purer eyes than to look upon evil, how can this be? And uh, the answer that the Lord gives, if I remember correctly, is, trust me, have faith in me. In uh, Habakkuk 2, that's Habakkuk 1, Habakkuk 2, uh, he, he, he says, these things will be explained, these things will become clear, but for the time, trust me that these things are so. And we see at least this, that God is using those forces of evil to accomplish his purposes. Uh, this is not a very good illustration, and I'd be glad if Neil either said don't use it or um, yes. Uh, but I sometimes think of a, some of these dogs that are awful to start with, you know, they're always biting people and so forth, but can be used to guard property. So you can have a, <laughs> a very nasty, uh, difficult dog, but it actually is put to some good purpose. It doesn't mean you approve of it, but you can put it to good purpose. That may not be a very good analogy, but I'd be keen to know if Neil's got anything to add here to this. Um, only to reinforce uh, what certain things that you've said. Uh, firstly, we are assured right from the very beginning of Scripture, uh, Genesis 18, uh, that God is just and will only do justice. Uh, in Abraham's interview uh, with the Lord before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And that's the assurance we have uh, throughout Scripture, right from the baseline. And uh, uh, secondly, to reinforce what Peter says, we don't get theoretical answers. So if we were taking, looking in a sense at our experience of evil more personally, you turn to the book of Job, and as you know, at the end of the book of Job, he gets no explanation. He just gets God. And that's enough in the end uh, that is enough and if we go to the end of the bible and then it says it says he will wipe every tear from our eye and again uh, you think we don't know how that is going to be and i'm sure it doesn't involve any kind of justification of evil but it will still be he will wipe every tear from our eye and there will be no regret and no grief and no shadow of doubt about his goodness. So, yeah. Neil, can I follow up with that? I think you were really helpful in saying with Job, he gets to the end, doesn't get an answer, but he, but he gets God. And, and, I, I, and the impulse in so many of our hearts is to seek an answer. And I think one of the big things when people keep pressing that question of God's sovereignty and, and evil is if God is all-knowing, God is all sovereign. Why would he create the world, instigate this plan of redemption, knowing that sin would enter, that he would send Christ, restore all things? 
it's a simplistic question, but does it, it seems awful, well, awfully painful and much to achieve what he knew otherwise was avoidable. Well, who knows what he knows? Uh, again, with Peter, you only know what he tells you he knows. But when you're thinking of it, um, so I'm getting ready to uh, preach on Jeremiah and the grief of God at the stubbornness and the destruction of destructiveness of sin is extraordinary in that book and is just so powerful. And you think in the end, we, we raise this question, but in the end, who bears the cost? Uh, it is God on the cross. He bears the cost of having a good world uh, in which, in the end, evil will be no more. So there's a, a fundamental uh, you know, Peter was talking about God's holiness, a separation from all evil too, even as he overrules it for a purpose which whose goodness exceeds our imagination, uh, just as his love and his wisdom on the cross exceed our imagination. So, um, yeah, I just think he's, he's got it. He gives us himself and he gives us himself in his son, and if you think on him, you think, actually, that's enough. What, what should, let's say there's people here and that they hear that, but they still have those questions that seek an explanation and that long for that, okay, God, tell me why you did all of this. And, and that, that there's still a sense in which that feels uh, morally unsatisfying, maybe. <clears throat> Um, what partial advice would you give to people to, who, who still sit with that question and feel like they can't do much with it? Okay. Uh, probably an unhelpful answer. Uh, but I reckon uh, that until, and this might be anticipating other questions, but until you can hear the Apostle say, uh, who are you, a man, to answer back to God? Will what is moulded say to him who is moulded mold, to its moulder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honoured use and another for dishonour? Until you can say cheerfully and wholeheartedly, the potter has the right, you will never be comfortable. But when you can say that, because you know him, even if you can feel the grief as, as uh, God feels the grief of people not turning back to him, then I think you can start to live uh, with peace. Because in the end, you've actually got to just say the potter has the right and it's good, but having handballed to me. No, but Neil, I, uh, thank you. That's very, very helpful indeed the, the, um, to me. Uh, and what you've also said, no, there is no, in a sense, philosophical answer to this in the Bible. You'll be told what you're told when you get there and you'll find it is so. There are many things in life that are totally inexplicable, totally inexplicable, until you see, oh, what they are. We've got a sign near us which says no standing, for example. You're not allowed to stand there from the point of view of a car. Not allowed to stand there. But all cars stop there because there's a red light there. 
How can we have a sign that says no standing? But we've got to, it's obvious when you know, but it's not obvious. It's one of those puzzles. It's an enigma. The same with this. It will become clear. But as Neil has pointed out, God hasn't explained the philosophy of it to us. If that's what's worrying you, for heaven's sake, go to the cross, will you? At the cross, God says there is an answer to this. It's deeper than you can possibly imagine, and it's got to do with me bearing it. And if that's not good enough for you, well, I'm sorry. But that is a tremendous answer, and it's where we need to fix our hearts and minds, not on the, the sort of the things we cannot know. But there's an answer to it. Can I ask you? You both have highlighted something really helpful, which is um, there are, I guess, in what what we might call a set of parallel truths within the Bible. Um, both things that are uh, two realities that are uh, not inconsistent but sit together. To us, they might feel like they're intention. So we might talk about uh, human freedom or, or human will as such and divine sovereignty. Uh, in many ways, it sounds like you're asking us to hold those things together. Before we think about how that looks, how do we get that wrong? Because I think what often happens is we are uncomfortable sitting with those two truths. So what do you think, uh, as human beings and believers, we tend to then do in order to reconcile and resolve these in our minds that the Bible would say probably not a helpful move to make oh we come up with all sorts of explanations and but the most dangerous one is to say well it can't be true i'm giving it up uh, that's just pride and foolishness there are many things <laughs> it's there are most things around you you don't understand why, why are you making a fuss about this one uh and bear in mind we're not our tendency is to think of god as another human being we think oh what applies to us must apply to him but he is God, and he controls all things. He is, his way of doing things is God's way of doing things. And so therefore it will contain mysteries and things that puzzle us, astonish us, but just happen to be true, as the Bible says. Because, Peter, if I can, I guess, look at what you were seeking, what you've been doing over the last um, day and a bit with us, is you've been looking at the Bible. And True. going well, and looking through the scriptures to show us what the Bible says, mm -hmm. and we asked that question earlier today about what is Bible and what is doctrine, as it were. What do you think the risks are of us kind of saying, okay, we need to focus on theology as a kind of philosophical exercise, and then not reckon with the Bible? What 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 tends to happen there? Well, in many ways, if we sit, okay, I'm just going to sit with the biblical data, look at what it says. I'm I'm left with this kind of collection of texts that I don't know what to do with. And I guess I can rationalize it in this way, but if I do that, I've got to do something to the Bible in order for it to fit into my system. Hmm. Yeah, the study of philosophy is, a, is a, an important one. And uh, I, I praise God that there are Christian philosophers, and I praise God, too, for what philosophers down through the ages have taught us one way or another. Uh, uh, there are many things which are not in the Bible which are left to us to discover. And... God be thanked. So much progress, particularly in the last uh, several hundred years, has been made in discovering things, both in science, which used to be called natural philosophy, and philosophy, as we understand it today. Thank God for it. I think studying philosophy is important. Uh, but it can't have the big voice over the Bible. It can't control the Bible. It, too, is a servant of the Bible. And one of the key reasons for that is human sinfulness. Okay, we, our, our perceptions are limited. We can see the truth, I don't doubt that, but our perceptions are limited. 
Our knowledge base is limited. And therefore, uh, we're far better off uh, understanding the Bible and understanding our philosophy in the light of what the Bible says, but of course studying philosophy. I think great ones like Socrates, Aristotle, etc., etc., are hugely important figures in the history of at least Western culture, but I think world culture as well. Uh, can I come in? It, it always uh, troubles me that the Pharisees were such great Bible people. <laughs> uh, I always know who to identify within the Gospels, sadly. The, uh, the, uh, so they really knew it, they believed it, but actually what they did was neglect a whole lot of the bits they didn't understand. And if we're going to be real Bible people, we have to keep the whole Bible always open before us and we particularly have to pay attention to the bits we don't get and the bits that don't fit into our system. And the great problem is, I think, drawing your system too tight too early uh, because what you're actually done then is shrunk and conformed the Bible truth to the limits of your understanding. It's actually much better just to keep reading it all and to keep being confounded by the bits you don't understand because humility and patience are the way to grow deeper in understanding and uh, yeah, you're, you're, <laughs> there are going to be bits that are going to keep on troubling you and if you don't want to end up like a Pharisee, you've got to give them weight. So Neil, can I ask with that, I think sometimes for us there's the issue of we don't understand it, so it doesn't fit within our system. It feels incoherent or inconsistent with what we believe. But there's also a realm of doctrines which I think sovereignty touches on, which is it's not just that it doesn't make sense, it's that we don't like it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah and so what do, you, what do you do? Because I think actually the repeat. number one thing I get about um, election and predestination is I can see the Bible teaches it, but I don't like it. Yeah, yeah. So what you've got to do is repent. It's, it's as straightforward <laughs> as that. Who knows God better, God or you? It really is that straightforward. And you've, you know, Isaiah 66, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word, it ought to terrify you to disagree with God. To, to actually read something he says and thinks, oh, I don't like that. He, he should have said that better. Uh, you know. One of the questions I often get is, um, and I'm surprised at how often I get this, is it okay to believe that the Bible says something but not like it? The answer... Oh, I've, I've got yeah. it, though. Is it... I, I meet people I'm like sure that. you did. Yeah, yeah. You will go first, but I'd love to. Is it possible to believe that the Bible genuinely teaches a particular doctrine, but I will insist in my heart that I do not like that? Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. As long as you say at the same time, isn't this a tremendous witness to the depravity of my mind and my imagination? <laughs> okay, as, as, long as, as, long as, as long as you're just clear that this just means that you are out of step with the all-wise, all-loving, almighty God. And again, that should trouble you because if you're a Christian, you want to become like his son Jesus. And he loved everything, God said. It was all life. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. 
He lived and died by it. Peter? How can I improve that? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask the question anyway. <laughs> That's there. Are these questions that you're making up, or are they questions? <laughs> it's a launch pad for me to really ask whatever I want. Um, oh. So here's the question as it is. Why would a just God die for only his elect and not the whole world? So notice it's about the justice of God as it relates to the, his death for his elect, not coherence or logic, it's about his justice and goodness, as it were. So why would a just God die only for his elect and not the whole world? What does the Bible say? Neil? <laughs> right, uh, again, because uh, we, did, we did talk about this. Um, let's start with what the Bible says about the death of Jesus. Because let me say, there are so many assumptions in that question even before you start talking about the appropriateness of talking about god dying which is injudicious language at best right but what does the bible say about the death of jesus it says lots and i'd always start with john 3 god so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him not perish but have everlasting life now, there's clearly a sense in which God gives his son for the world. And the world is not the elect considered under another name. The world is humanity in rebellion against God. But that's not all, of course, that scripture says. You move on into, uh, you know, John 10, and it says that the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And so you have to think, when you're thinking about the death of Jesus, and it's relation to people there has to be a sense in which it's for the world and there's a sense in which it's also for his people and they are different in their application but there is a, it's a genuine love of god that gives his son for the world well the right? bible says so doesn't it, it yes one, it one john 2 2 yes he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours but also for those of the whole world Right. So, so there is a sense, clearly a sense, in which the Son is given for the world, but God in his great mercy makes the death of his Son effective for his people. And it is mercy. Right? He saves his people fully and completely. And that's the difficulty, isn't it, with the, with the word justice appeared in the question? Oh, yeah. Can you remind me of the question? Uh, why would a just God? Yes. Okay. Well, why would a just, just God save anybody? Because justice at the heart of the universe is justice really demands the death of all. If any of us saved, it's not through justice considered in the way that question suggests. It's through mercy and grace that anyone is saved. And uh, I think I would uh, thoroughly agree with Neil that the death of, uh, because it's in the Bible, uh, the death of Jesus is certainly, if, if, you, if you tell someone Jesus died for them, you're speaking the truth. However, as Ephesians 5 tells us, sorry, I interrupted you, Neil. As Ephesians 5 tells us that Jesus laid down his life for his church. So if you like, uh, his purpose was to save his church. Now, we don't know how big his church is. And, and you also don't want to say, 
that we know the complete fullness of his purpose. God might have many purposes in the death of his son. It, it strikes me then as we hear this conversation, there's so many questions that come up around God's sovereignty and the nature of God. That actually, I think one thing, Neil, that you, you touched on is that actually repentance, sit at, sit, repentance and humility sits at the heart of doing theology. Uh, it's not just an intellectual academic exercise. It's the heart thing as we approach our God and submit to his word. And, and Peter, you've been talking about where you start is not necessarily with um, our pre-existing system or way of thinking about what God must be, but with how God reveals himself in his word, what it tells us about who he is, and then working out, out from there. Is that, is that right? Because I think we all bring a certain set of questions to the Bible, but often it's, we, we don't really know how to go about it. And so is theology as much about our godliness and humility as it is about our thinking and thoughts? I'll start so that Neil has a moment to think of the true answer. Um, it seems to me, uh, go back a little. You had a session last year on hermeneutics, uh, or my Dutch uncle, as we used to call it, hermeneutics. Um, sorry, if, I beg your pardon if that joke just fell flat. Uh, <laughs> Interpreting the Bible, in other words. Now, there's one key point about interpreting the Bible. There are many, but there's one in particular. The Bible is one. It is written by one Holy Spirit using many people. And the manyness of the people is illustrated by the type of literature and all sorts of things like that. But the oneness of the Bible, the Holy Spirit being the author of all, means that the key interpretive principle is that the Bible interprets the Bible. And we need to recognise that you've got to read the... I, I had a ham sandwich for lunch. According to the Bible, I shouldn't. Eating pork is forbidden in the Bible. Who else had a ham sandwich here? You unbiblical people, you scoundrels. Well, that's ridiculous, because you know that when you read the Bible all the way through... The law that says don't eat pork uh, or don't eat pigs has been repealed. It doesn't mean it should be cut out of the Bible. It still does a job in the Bible, but it doesn't do the same job as actual literal not eating pig. So the Bible interprets the Bible. Now, that's very important because there are some issues which are huge issues where two things are said Almost side by side, There's in the book of Proverbs, there are two Proverbs that absolutely contradict each other. But until you get both of them, you won't get to the truth. You need both. And uh, there's a bit in the Bible in Exodus, my favorite illustration. In Exodus, it says, God says, I will never acquit the guilty. Why are we here? Because in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, I think it is, he says he acquits the guilty. So here's God saying at the one point, I never do this, and the other point it says I justify the ungodly or acquit the guilty. Now how can both things be true? Well, the Bible wouldn't be true unless you had both things in it. Sometimes you need the contradiction to get to the truth. And of course, what lies between I will never acquit the guilty, and I do acquit the guilty, is the cross of Christ. And the whole thing becomes true. Now that's, if, if you look at the way human beings look at the world, you'll often find things which are apparently contradictory. 
and you just live with the contradiction because that's the truth. And I think you'll find that in the Bible as well. Not that there are hundreds of contradictions, but you have to understand the Bible, any particular part of the Bible, in the light of the whole Bible. It's a key point of interpretation. Neil, if I may. Uh, and um, I would add something that uh, Peter, if he wanted to, could speak of uh, at greater length uh, because he's written a whole book and two, basically, on it. And that is uh, our starting point for our interaction with the Bible is uh, the gospel. And uh, that gives you your, as it were, your situation. So... As Adam's alluded, there have been basically in the last few years a, a change in the way people have done theology and often in many places they start theology by looking at their situation, their circumstance, their location, their presuppositions. Uh, and so that's immediately almost locating um, authority in themselves, at least interpretive authority. Uh, I think that that is a fundamental mistake. And it's a mistake Peter has pointed out at length because actually your starting point is the gospel. You come to the scripture because you have heard God speak to you in the gospel. And your starting point is repentance and faith. And that gives you your locatedness. See, your location is as a sinner who's saved by grace. So that is, you're already in a sense admitting the distortions in your thinking the distortions in your will, your desperate need for God to speak to you and open your eyes, you come always turning to him. And so, yes, humility and patience is the only starting place for reading the Bible because, in a sense, you're a child who's having to be taught, uh, taught by God from his word. So, so yeah, yeah, and 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 you just have to think of that. If 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 you if you come to scripture as somebody other than a saved sinner, you will have already distorted your interaction with the living Word of God. Right. What a bonzer answer! I think I got it from the beginning of your book. <laughs> oh, did you? Oh. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. you can buy at the bookshop outside for thirty-five dollars. Uh, Neil, the, can the I ask? The big one. Which one, sir? Sorry? The big one. The on big Revelation. one. The big one. Uh, can I ask, uh, Neil, questions come through on repentance. How can we truly repent if we continue to commit the same sin over and over again? No, that's not how... That, that question is, how can we truly repent if we continue? It's, have I truly repented if I continue? So, so, so committing sin just gives you ample opportunity to keep repenting. So, so that's not the... Uh, and this again, it's it's the bigger question, I think, of what progress can I expect to see in godliness where every day I put to death sin and come alive to Christ? That I think is is the question. And I think the answer is always optimistic because it says God is at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Even a repeated sin is a sin by God's grace you get forgiven for. <laughs> Thankfully, praise the Lord. Uh, so, so, so they're not sins outside his grace. And he has promised by his spirit to work in you and to conform you 
uh, to the image of his son. So I, 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 I know it's discouraging and frustrating, uh, but it doesn't change anything. Jesus is still the saviour. You've still got to say no to sin and you've got to say yes to living God's will. Now, again, um, depending on your view of that, I always found J.I. Packer very helpful on this in keeping step with the Spirit because he said if you've got a goal and it really matters to you, you give yourself to thinking about how you can achieve it. So if there is a besetting sin that is really frustrating you and you want to be holy, then you just sit down and prayerfully think about it. You think, you know, under what circumstances do I do it? How can I change those circumstances? What's it saying about me in my heart? What do I need to put to death in my heart? You know, there's a whole series of things that you can practically engage with if you take godliness seriously, and you should because you know you'll win. If you're God's person, God's spirit is at work in you and he will change you. What's the name of that book again? That was Keeping Set with the Spirit. He's got that, you remember, he, he's got that section where Would you where say he, it slightly more slowly so that everyone can hear it? Uh, it's, it's Keeping Step with the Spirit and, and there he relates his previous contact with um, <coughs> Keswick, you know, let go and let God and the frustration that brought into his life and then he started reading the Puritans to help him read the Bible. Yeah, yeah. Very helpful indeed. And so if I understand you correctly, uh, it'd be very unusual for us all not to have some besetting sin or sins that we recognise. That we have besetting sins we don't even recognise. We have besetting sins. You're saying don't give up. Simply keep fighting it. Even though you may be beaten, keep fighting it because that's how repentance will work. And that in the end, whether in this life or the next, God will relieve you of this addictive behaviour, but keep working on it. Am I understanding you correctly? Yes. Okay, yes. And the other thing too, and you will agree with this, I'm sure, looking at your grey hair, uh, <laughs> that although you may be a better man than you were 30 years ago, uh, the trouble is as you get older, the more you recognise how sinful you are. <laughs> so. yeah. And different sins. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm sure I'm much more, you know, you get towards retirement, you start to worry a bit more about money than you did before and, you know, trust in money and things like that or you have to battle with pride. Uh, it, it, just different sins. And the, the only other thing I'd add with that is avoid the temptation of the magic bullet. See, see, see who, who is the Christian who is vulnerable to being seduced by false answers in this? It's actually the serious Christian who's troubled, right? And somebody comes along and they tell you they'll cast out that demon of anger or some kind of rubbish or like this or you let go and you let God. And, and because you want to be godly, you think, yes. But no, the, the path set out for you is denying yourself daily taking up your cross and follow Jesus every day, putting sin to death, every day coming alive by the Spirit. You can only do it one day at a time. Can I translate some of that for you? Please go <laughs> Is ahead. Is that all right? Fortunately, we know each other and love each other. That's why I insult him like this. It's a true... <laughs> it's, a, it's a sort of an Australian technique of showing love. Uh, uh, this is what Neil is saying is so important and it affected me, I have to say, when I first became a Christian, 
Uh, there was teaching around. After a couple of years, I realised I, I was just committing sin. I, I didn't seem to break free. And there was teaching around, which Neil's referred to. Uh, it came from a movement called the Keswick Movement. And it was a holiness movement. And it promised release from sin. And so you get a second blessing, sometimes called the baptism of the Spirit. You get a second blessing. And that lifts you up to, what, what was the phrase? You, let go and let God. That's right. So instead of struggling against it, you just let God take you and God would fix it, uh, which is not what the Bible says at all. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works within. So uh, and uh, for, for quite some time, I was in the grip of this teaching and believing all the time that I would be a better person and then finding that I wasn't a better person, but I knew I was because I'd had the second blessing. So I must be, but I wasn't, and so forth. And I remember, and I know we're running out of time, no, but I walked a young lady home one night, from, all the way from our church to home, and explained the second blessing to her so she'd get it as well because you become an evangelist for this. And when we got to the end of the walk, she said, no, Peter, I don't think that's true. <laughs> Later on, I married her. <laughs> and he, <laughs> She was always cleverer than me. It's, it's funny, isn't it? Because whether we talk about um, God's sovereignty and evil, whether we talk about uh, God's election and our repentance, or whether we're talking about uh, our sanctification and God's work in that, we come back to that same sort of dynamic at play, don't we? And I, I was just thinking 2 Peter 1, God's divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. Verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. That they go together. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and... Seeing that we are touching on these things, can I just get it out there? God's sovereignty is not the problem, it's the solution. No, it's not the grief, it's the joy. It, it's, uh, I, I am so grateful that I can pray, you know, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil, <laughs> deliver us from the evil. And life would be pretty miserable if I couldn't trust God to do that. In, in one sense, God's sovereignty without his goodness might be terrifying, but his sovereignty and his goodness make it one of the most beautiful and assuring doctrine that there could be. Still terrifying. Yeah. Uh, Together. Uh, yeah, so is his goodness. Mm. So just, just remember that. Mm. That's what terrifies people, facing up to the good God. Can, can we end with this question? And it's a funny question to end with, but I do get it. And I'm just going to read it as it is. And this is what it says. I'm not passionate about learning new doctrines or understanding things on a nerdy level. Is this sinful? On a, what on a nerdy level. So, do I understand that word? On an nerdy? academic nerdy, as an academic level, uh, should I care more about Calvin, Calvinism, etc.? I guess the question is getting to what if what if that I I love the Lord Jesus, but I'm just not that passionate about getting into what feels like academic fields of theology. Um, is is that is that wrong? Very proud. 
Don't you think it's proud? I'm asking the question. Just so. <laughs> like, okay. Uh, uh, is this one of your questions? Uh, no, no, it's, it's from anonymous 15 minutes ago. See, there are two things. Um, if I were answering that, first of all, you should be passionate about the truth. You know, the blessed person is the person who meditates on God's word. Uh, his word is our delight. That should be true of every Christian. But secondly, there is the reality of giftedness. You know, the ascended Lord Jesus gives to men, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. Uh, people have different gifts. And amongst those different gifts are different intellectual gifts. Okay, and let's face it, theology at least is an intellectual exercise. And so you need certain kind of gifts and a capacity for abstraction and things like that to do it. So, so you know, you don't have to be a theologian, right? You don't have to do it. But you do have to love God's word and you have to love storing it up and you have to love meditating on it and you have to love its truth and you ought to want to know how to apply it in your life. Uh but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be like Peter in actually being able to handle those truths and things like that. You've got to be like him in graciousness and gentleness, humility, all those other things, which are... Which are <laughs> yeah, he is paying me for this. I, should I have given that disc? Right? Well, that's what I found. But, but you don't have to be like him in those other things. So does that answer that question? Very helpfully. Peter, any, any closing thoughts on that? Yes, and, and thank you very much, Neil. That, uh, I don't mean for the bit about me, but I mean about <laughs> the answer, which is absolutely true. We, as Christians, we have to love the truth, and that means it's an intellectual. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. However, um, how does John Calvin fit into all this? One of the reasons I said it's a, the, the question is a proud question, forgive me whoever asked the question, but it's proud in a way, is that the point is we are not the first people to read the Bible. We've had 2,000 years of Bible reading, thank God, and some of it turned up with ridiculous stuff, but there is a mainstream of material which has come down to us which really helps us to understand the Bible, which is what Neil is saying with the gift of teachers and prophets and so forth. Now, with John Calvin, John Calvin was one of the greatest theologians that ever lived. He had a wonderful grasp of the Bible. He also had a wonderful grasp of the first four centuries of the church's life, and he would read those people and to help him to understand the Bible. So that's wonderful. Few of us are like John Calvin. I think John Calvin has a great deal to teach us. However. I don't, I'm not a Calvinist. I am reformed in my theology, but I'm not a Calvinist. I read John Calvin, but I don't worship John Calvin. And I fear sometimes some of us get a theologian in our heads, and Calvin is one of them, and we become disciples of John Calvin. I don't want you to be disciples of John Calvin. I want you to be disciples of Jesus Christ with the help of John Calvin and Martin Luther and etc., etc., etc. So I hope that's helpful. Uh, yes, we do need to listen to the tradition. We do need to listen to what people have said. Otherwise, it's proud for us simply to say, oh, I can read the Bible. No. 
we read the Bible with the help of others. And Jesus set up the church like that. But in the end, of course it is. You reading the Bible daily, constantly, in the fellowship of the church, and loving God's word. Thank you Amen. so much. Friends, uh, some book recommendations if you'd like. One first book recommendation in terms of that last question, uh, a really short book by John Stott called Your Mind Matters. Uh, it's not a new one. It's been there forever. It's short, so that makes it easy. Second one on sanctification by Tim Chester, You Can Change. Uh, so I think often what happens partially, we give in to sin because we give up on change. And so we just it's never going to happen. Don't need to fight. I'll just give in. But You Can Change by Tim Chester. Third one uh, on uh, the death of Christ and who it's for. Don Carson, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Uh, not hard to read, not super long, but it does step through in what ways God's love can be differentiated in those ways. But finally, final book to read. Uh, as Peter Adam always says, he goes, uh, one young man came to me and asked me, Peter, what book can you recommend on leadership? I looked up and said, the Bible. And then he goes, what book can you recommend on marriage? I looked up and said, the Bible. I don't know that was very helpful to him, but the answer was true. Uh, so look to the Bible. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to take a break and come back for our final session. Uh, God, we look to your word, because we know that you have the words of life. And we approach you, God, with humility. We know, God, how small we are in, in front and as we stand and kneel before such a great God. And yet to think that a God as great as you would stoop to people like us, not only to save us, but to form a relationship and covenant of love with us so that we might know you not only as our God and King, but as our loving Heavenly Father. What a wonderful privilege that is. And so, God, as we spend our whole lives in many ways seeking to know you better, give us the humility, but also by your Spirit, open the eyes of our hearts so that we might see you more clearly and so love you and give you greater glory. These things we ask and pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Friends, why don't you give Peter and Neil a hand and thank them. <laughs>